coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. As we've talked about here for the uh, last few days and uh, over the stretch run of this entire show since last October, we've talked off and on about this misguided Buckhead City movement. There is a very vocal, very powerful, very influential money uh, minority of Buckhead citizens that are hell-bent on pursuing this sort of, I've said it before and I'll say it again, lazier form of white flight. It's a segregation of sorts to try and carve out the whitest, more affluent portion of Atlanta into a separate city, the take our ball and go home mentality because Buckhead said, well, this vocal minority of Buckhead citizens has felt all along that they don't get the treatment they deserve from the city of Atlanta. And yet, again, this is the most affluent part of Atlanta. It has arguably the nicest streets uh, crime is dropping. I believe this is the second or third year in a row that crime in that zone has dropped. It is well served by city services. I was actually driving from softball practice to Brent. This is so anecdotal. I was driving from softball practice to lunch Sunday with uh, some of the teammates. And I was driving through one of the nicer residential neighborhoods on my way, you know, to, uh, to Peachtree road to grab some brunch. And, I saw in the distance a fire truck off to the side. And I thought, uh-oh, is there a house on fire? No. Some jogger, I guess, passed out or had a, an event there. And there were three EMTs and a fireman there. And then I, I drove not even a tenth of a mile later and there was an ambulance. Co- uh, you know, that doesn't happen in the hood. <laughs> that does not. If somebody passes out uh, in the hood, uh, people drive by it all the time. No, just a. Another vagrant. Yeah, I mean, okay, totally anecdotal. I'm just saying, Buckhead is not uh, hurting. Buckhead is not the redhead stepchild. Buckhead is the favorite child, literally the favorite child, who in any event when that child doesn't get everything it wants or it isn't a completely sunny day, will complain. And the rest of Atlanta just kind of rolls their collective eyes and groans. Here she goes again. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. The thing is, it's not even a majority of Buckhead citizens. It's not even the Buckhead community. It's not the business circle. The legislators that represent that area, they're not for a city of Buckhead City either. I bring up the business community because the Buckhead Coalition, which is a pretty powerful, influential group of uh, business leaders, they wrote a letter to state legislators imploring them to renounce Senate Bills 113 and 114. Eric Tannenblatt, who is the chair of this Buckhead Coalition, wrote a letter on February 27th and stated that these two bills will, quote, choke off economic development because there are significant practical questions about de-annexation for which we have no answers. 
Clearly, he either saw a video or heard this exchange during the Senate hearings when Jason Robertson, the senator from Catala, Georgia, along with one of his co-signers, who again is not from anywhere near Buckhead or the city of Atlanta, was quizzed by State Senator Jason Estevez, who does represent Buckhead. What about um, the fact that this bill covers general obligation bonds? What about revenue bonds? It, co- it covers the general ob- obligation bonds and not the revenue bonds. So the city of Atlanta has other bonds aside from the general obligation bond that Buckhead residents pay into. What about that debt? Would this bill cover that debt? I couldn't. I cannot answer that question. I have. I have a bond lawyer who wrote the Spartan. That that's beyond my knowledge on that one, Senator. Okay. And then there's the whole voter participation thing. Um, what about the residents, y'all? Special tax districts require the vote of the majority of a of a voting population. It can't be done through legislation, according to the Constitution. How does this bill account for that? I would, I'd have to defer to legislative counsel on that piece. All those important unanswered questions, and yet all five Republicans on the eight-person panel voted to move ahead with this anyway. Yeah, uh, let's see. Eric Tenenblout and Buckhead Coalition folks in their letter to the state legislators also asked this question. What happens to the existing water and sewer infrastructure whose systems, quote, won't change with political whims? And what about the state's bond markets? These are questions that businesses will consider in their due diligence in considering relocation. Tenenbaum, by the way, is no tree-hugging progressive liberal. He (laughs) was chief of staff under Republican Governor Sonny Perdue. So don't go thinking this is some sort of partisan hit job. This is just a man who's thinking things through rationally. And despite the Buckhead City folks having three years to plan this all out, he readily realizes they don't have any of the answers. They don't know how to do this. But as he continues writing this letter on behalf of Buckhead Coalition, he just points out that these bills would, quote, sow chaos and set us down a long path of uncertainty. Continuing, Buckhead is at once home to major commercial enterprises in towering skyscrapers and young families on quiet tree-lined streets. That didn't happen by accident, and we have the Gold Dome to thank for fostering such a unique, pro-business climate across the state. See, sounds like a Republican. But businesses crave, he continues, no, they demand stability and confidence in local government. In practical terms, SB 113 and SB 114, creating a November 2024 referendum would sow chaos and set us down a long path of uncertainty. He called the annexation, quote, short-sighted and counterproductive to our mutual goals of increased public safety and economic progress. We have profound symbolic and practical reservations about dividing our city. Cleaving one neighborhood from the rest would mean the end of Atlanta's reputation as, quote, the city too busy to hate, an identity so strong it helped attract the Olympic Games and made us a global tourist destination. Tenenbaum added this, there are many reasons to be proud to be an Atlantan, world-class institutions of higher learning, a booming economy, and more sports and cultural attractions than there are hours in the day. But I'm most proud of Atlanta's tradition of civic groups collaborating with government, business, and faith leaders in public-private partnerships to address our most urgent local challenges. SB 113 and SB 114 would represent an admission that we no longer believe in that model. 
The General Assembly deserves enormous credit for helping make Buckhead the city of Atlanta and the state of Georgia what they are today by supporting free market solutions to local challenges. I told y'all he's a Republican. We hope you won't abandon this track record now. Please vote no on Senate Bill 113 and Senate Bill 114. I may have a new favorite Republican. (laughs) Incidentally, I like the term cleaving. (laughs) That's the second time I've seen the word cleaving used in reference to cutting off the northern portion of Atlanta to create a city of Buckhead City. The other time I saw this, I think, was in an article. Yeah, it was. Uh, Greg Bluestein wrote an article that talked about some of the many and varied problems with detethering Buckhead from Atlanta. Uh, Greg goes on to point out uh, resolving whether more than $3 billion of Atlanta's outstanding bonds would be at risk after the split, uh, whether kids in Buckhead could legally attend local public schools, the fate of the Beltline, didn't even think about that, other cultural jams that are within Buckhead's footprint, or the future of the proposed public safety center. Yeah, the Buckhead residents really want that far, far away down in the South DeKalb area and nowhere near their pristine area of the city. Uh, Greg goes on to write, these weighty questions are only the start of fresh scrutiny of Senate Bills 113 and 114, the tandem of Buckhead City measures that cleared a Senate committee on Monday and could reach a full vote in the chamber as soon as tomorrow, y'all. And I mentioned this yesterday, Greg kind of skims over it in the article here. Uh, This isn't just a Buckhead City in Atlanta thing. There are other pockets, enclaves we'll call them, uh, of other cities in Georgia that are eyeing this thinking, okay, if they can pull this off, we're going to do it too. Because uh, one of these bills actually just covers the potential for this to happen in any city. This isn't all bucket specific. Uh, Greg writes, there are also overarching concerns about whether it could damage the bond ratings of other Georgia cities. Yeah. I know there are folks in the more affluent portion of Augusta, West Augusta, who are just like that meme of Anthony Anderson hiding behind the tree, licking his chops and rubbing his hands together. Oh yeah, they're eyeing this because they too would like to detach from Augusta if they can, if they can do it nice and neatly and without all those messy obligations like paying past debt that they helped to rack up. And the reason I call this a lazier form of white flight, by the way, because at least when folks were getting up and literally packing their own belongings and leaving for the suburbs in other city limits or other counties altogether, those folks left behind massive infrastructures and any debt that those cities racked up to have those infrastructures to begin with, along with the cost to maintain those infrastructures and pay those debts back on time on the backs of the citizens that stayed behind in those cities. Of course, financially crippling those cities and in the process yanking any economic activity out to the suburbs with them instead. All the while demonizing the condition the cities they left behind are in for the last three, four, five decades or so. It's (laughs) the lack of self-awareness, I'm telling you, in that clique is stunning. So I say the City of Buckhead City movement is a lazier form of white flight because they get to do all of that without actually having to pack up and move. Oh, they can just stay right where they are. Ah, so lazy. The truth of the matter is I may have spent more time on this than is even necessary, but these folks are not just going to quit. They've been at this for three years, they said, despite not having many answers. Uh, and so this will likely, if it even passes the Senate, and I don't think it will, it'll probably still get choked off in the uh, Georgia House. 
Maybe we can hope these malcontents will just want to sell off their properties and move somewhere else then. For which I, as a real estate agent, would say, please go for it. Inventory is super low there. Follow The Ron Show on Facebook at The Ron Show Radio. The Ron Show on America One Radio. I try to be a humble guy. Honestly, I do. No, really. But remember yesterday I went off on this rant about (laughs) the economy and inflation and the Fed trying to screw around with it and consumer pricing and uh, how the the pinheads don't really seem to know what's going on. And and I kind of spelled it out. I said, uh, well, we're under this misconception that for some reason, because unemployment is low and employers are saying, it's funny, we can't fill all the jobs. And yet all this this hand-wringing about how consumers are still spending money, there's like this disconnect. Uh, y'all, the gig economy is a real thing and people are taking advantage of it. But nobody really seems to want to say that, uh, except for me yesterday and a fella who goes by the name of Robert Reich. That's right, former Labor Secretary Robert Reich. Man, he was spitting on Twitter today. Look at this. I keep hearing no one wants to work anymore. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce, corporate America's biggest lobbying group, claims there are over 10 million job openings right now in the Mm -hmm. United States for which employers can't find workers. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell says the U.S. is dealing with a structural labor shortage. But here's the truth. There is no labor shortage. There is, however, a shortage of jobs paying sufficient wages to attract workers to fill them. When a problem is wrongly described, the solutions posed often turn out to be equally wrong. For most Americans, real inflation-adjusted wages continue to drop. Any pay increases workers may have earned in the past few years have actually been pay cuts because wages have lagged behind the rising costs of basic necessities Mm -hmm. like housing, food, childcare, and healthcare. Now, you don't have to be a financial wizard to see why some workers might say, the hell with it. So, what should be done about the difficulty employers are having finding workers? Simple. If employers want more workers, they should pay them more. Many corporations are raking it in right now. They can clearly afford to. Of course, Jerome Powell and his colleagues at the Fed don't want to hear this. They're aiming to deal with the so-called labor shortage by slowing the economy so much that employers can find all the workers they need without raising wages. But the Fed increasing interest rates to slow the economy will prevent millions of people from getting desperately needed raises and cause millions more to lose their jobs, disproportionately low-wage workers, women, and people of color. Meanwhile, Republicans and some corporate economists blame the labor shortage on overly generous unemployment benefits. They say the way to get more people into jobs is to make their lives outside jobs less tolerable. Rubbish! Most unemployed people are already hard up. Pandemic benefits are long over. And even before COVID, America's unemployment system was already the least generous of any rich nation. Taken to its logical extreme, the corporate Republican argument holds water only if you don't give a damn about workers. Sure, you could eliminate all safety nets, and at some point, people without jobs will hurt so much, they'll have to take any available job at any wage, whatever it demands. But do this, and we'll end up with an economy that's even crueler than today's economy. Look. 
If we want more people to take jobs and we wish to live in a moral society where people can maintain decent lives, the answer is to pay people more. Instead of saying no one wants to work anymore, we should be saying no one wants to be exploited anymore. Which again, all goes back to this. The gig economy is the great equalizer. And listen, here's the scary thing. I I mean, I know the right like to make a lot of noise, uh, especially in the election cycle last year, about the 87,000 new IRS agents. Never mind that like 65,000 or so are are just replacement agents for those that are retiring out in the next 10 years. That 87,000 is over the next decade. They don't tell you that. They also don't tell you again that I want to say like three quarters of them are just replacing agents that uh, are retiring out. But there is going to be some additional infrastructure for things like uh, cybersecurity and uh, fraud investigating, things along those lines. And it is true, there is this new emphasis to peer into Venmo and Cash App to make sure that you're not getting some under-the-table income that you're not telling Uncle Sam about. We wouldn't do that, now would we? Of course we would. Uh, But here's the thing. That's all coming from the left. Wait until the Chamber of Commerce types, the business class conservatives, realize that, hey, you know what? Actually, that's not a bad idea because then we can hypertax that under-the-table income once we get an eye on it, and that'll scare the working class back to working for us so that we can get back to exploiting them. Now, look, I'm no tax attorney, but but I am a 1099 employee because, again, I'm a real estate agent. I'm a realtor. I only get paid when I help someone buy or sell a house. And that commission, which, by the way, you already, most agents, share with your brokerage. They get about you know anywhere from 10, 20, sometimes 30, 40%, depending on the firm you work with. They're already taking a chunk out of that, but you're getting taxed for the whole thing. That's if you're getting the full commission and then you pay the brokerage. If the brokerage gets the full commission and then pays you, then obviously you're not getting taxed on the whole thing. Okay, just want to clear that up. Anyway, where was I going with that? Oh, yeah. I I believe if you are a 1099 employee or you get paid cash, Venmo, Zelle, Cash App, whatever it is, that there should be a, a base amount that you just don't get taxed on. I mean, it could be 25000 30000 45000 50000 whatever. If that is your sole income source, much like it would be for someone who is a W-2 employee, there should be a certain amount that you're just not taxed on right away. At least no more than the Social Security and Medicare portion, which is like 15%. But, you know, when you're self-employed, you pay the employer portion of the income tax. It's like 7.65% or something like that, along with what you're paying in taxes for the income you make, too, because you are your own employer. Yeah, that's the thing that sucks about being self-employed. That's my one big critique of the uh, IRS funding part, the addition of agents to look into Venmo and Cash App and Zelle or whatever device you use app to uh, transfer cash from one person to another privately, or if you just pay cash. Wasn't really wild about that, but I'm telling you, once corporations and conservatives who are pro-business and realize they're having a hard time filling these uh, formerly exploitable positions with, once they realize that that's to their benefit, oh, they'll be all behind that part, guarantee you, even if they're able to whack that 87,000 number in future legislation or a new president after 2024, they'll keep that part in, mark my words.
Anyway, I got off track a little bit. I just wanted to point out that uh, Robert Reich and I, former Labor Secretary Robert Reich, he and I are on the same page. Though I must point out, I was one day ahead. More Ron Show on America One Radio next. Aside from being politically savvy and a commentator of all things public policy and pop culture, I'm also a realtor with EXP Realty. And I don't know if you saw this recently, but Housing and Urban Development, HUD, decided, you know what? First-time homebuyers deserve a break on their mortgage insurance premium. It's a way that you, the individual buyer, can save on your mortgage insurance premium. It had been spiked up about 11, 12 years ago after the housing crash to 0.85% the cost of the mortgage. Well, they lowered it to 0.55%. And that can save you, I don't know, anywhere from 60 to 75, maybe $100 a month, depending on the price of the home you're going to purchase. Now, you may not think that that's a big deal, but if you are a renter right now, ask yourself, is your landlord going to cut your rent by 75 to 100 bucks? a month? We both know the answer. Stop patting your landlord's bottom line and start patting your own when you buy your first home. Give me a call 843-283-0078 or email me ron at rononthereal.com. Georgia MLS 396-720. Take the Ron Show wherever you go. Download the America One Radio app to your smartphone and listen on the go. Or in traffic wishing you were on the go. The Ron Show on America One Radio. Maybe it's just me getting more mellow in my older, I want to say old age. Uh, I, by the way, turned 49 last week, so I'm a little sensitive to this. Anyway, uh, maybe as I'm getting more mellow, I have come to the realization that we probably just need to let people go out and eat without disrupting their evening. I used to be, and I don't know, maybe I could be talked back into this. I used to be a big fan of folks hollering at Mitch McConnell when he'd leave a, a brunch with his wife, Elaine Chow, uh, by folks who are sick and tired of things like gun death or the hostile takeover of our Supreme Court. And my God, the repercussions that's going to give this country for the next four decades, maybe three, four decades, at minimum two decades uh, without Biden packing the court. Come on, Joe, what are you waiting on? Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I used to be a big fan of that. I used to think, you know what? Anybody who causes this much unrest for the common man shouldn't be impermeable to the blowback, right? Uh, Marjorie Taylor, oh, yeah, um, before I get to Marjorie, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, same thing happened to her. She was at a restaurant. Folks were, you know, not happy to see her there. I believe the restaurant asked her to leave. Yeah. Uh, remember when Nikki Haley was out having brunch? Girl, how dare you? In New York City, in Manhattan, after all the anti-gay measures that you triumphed and for blocking marriage in South Carolina? Oh, no, ma'am. You can't go out to brunch? That's our thing. <laughs> yeah, she was kind of, you know, chased off. Her and her, her family were sort of uh, not treated well. I, I, I used to think, okay, you know what? If you are anti-gay or... Uh, anti-black or anti-people, eh, you're going to face the consequences of just being a bad person, right? Marjorie Taylor Greene claims, I've seen nobody come forward with any evidence of this yet, herself included, but I, I'll, I'll take her at her word. <clears throat> she claims on Twitter that she was, quote, attacked in a restaurant 
by the way, I think the word attack is overused. If you are verbally accosted, you are not attacked. I think if you are attacked, you should come away with like scratches and bruises, something bleeding or uh, swollen, a black eye or something like that's an attack. If someone verbally accosts you, you're just verbally accosted. Uh, she tweets, I was attacked in a restaurant tonight by an insane woman. Uh, she actually said women, girl, and, and screamed at by her adult son. They had no respect for the restaurant or the staff or the other people dining or people like me who simply have different political views. <laughs> they are self-righteous, insane, and completely out of control. I was sitting at my table working with my staff, and never even noticed these people until they turned into demons. People used to respect others even if they had different views, but not anymore. Our country is gone. Y'all, she had the audacity to write this, knowing full well, we don't forget. David Hogg doesn't forget. David Hogg responded, Man, that sucks. I was attacked and screamed at in 2018 by an insane woman named Marjorie Taylor Greene. She had no respect for the privacy of me as an 18-year-old school shooting survivor or my staff. She was self-righteous, insane, and completely out of control. David Hogg, you'll remember, is a Parkland shooting survivor and one of the principal organizers for the March for Our Lives movement. He's walking the sidewalks in Washington, D.C., and this deranged, insane, out-of-control woman starts tailing him. Yeah. David, why are you supporting the red flag laws? If there had been, if Scott Peterson, the resource officer at Parkland had done his job, then Nicholas Cruz wouldn't have killed anybody in your high school or at least protected them. Why are you supporting red flag gun laws that attack our second amendment rights? And why are you using kids to get to, as a barrier? By the way, red flag laws might have prevented the gay bar shooting in Colorado Springs last year. Just saying. Okay, back to crazy pants. Do you not know how to defend your stance? Look, I'm an American citizen. I'm a gun owner. I have a concealed carry permit. I carry a gun with, for protection for myself. And you are using your lobby and the money behind it and the kids to try to take away my Second Amendment rights. I love how she wants him to dialogue with her while also mentioning Madam Crazy Pants, who's tailing you, also is a gun-carrying gun owner. Yeah, let me just stop and talk to you. <laughs> you don't have anything to say for yourself? You can't defend your stance? How did you get over 30 appointments with senators? How'd you do that? How did you get major press coverage on this issue? And how did you get kids? Why do you use kids? Why kids? <laughs> You know, if school, if school zones were protected by, with security guards with guns, there would be no mass shootings at schools. Do you know that? Yeah, there were a lot of uh, cops standing outside Uvalde who were too afraid to go in and deal with a mass shooter. Just saying. That went on for another minute or so, where she's literally tailing him. Announced, by the way, that she is not only a gun enthusiast and a gun owner, but that she has one on her. And wonders why he won't stop to talk with her. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm having a hard time feeling really sorry for Marjorie Taylor Greene and the sanctity of her dinner last night because uh, 
She doesn't seem to respect the sanctity of other folks' free time. I'm fine with not even debating David. Yeah. I'll debate his mom. Like, come on, mom and a mama. Mom and mama. Come on, mama. You can be like, look, I just don't want to pick on a little 18-year-old kid. Okay? And by the way, don't let anyone like her gaslight into you thinking, well, I'll debate you. No, you won't. Marjorie Taylor Greene has absolutely no interest in debating anybody. She debated Marcus Flowers during the general election season last year, and all she did was interrupt and yell over the man. That's not debating. That's bullying. That's all she is, y'all. An ignorant, spoon-faced bully. I know. You know what? I used ad hominem when I shouldn't, but whatever. I'm just going to get down on her muddy piggy level. That's all she is. She's just an ignorant bully who wants to over yell, who wants to just keep repeating something instead of providing an answer or something of substantive response. She couldn't even sit quietly and respect the office of the presidency during the State of the Union address. She wants to talk about other folks' decorum? Madam, please, have a damn seat. These MAGA fanatics have no couth, and yet they want to hold people to a higher standard. And listen, I vehemently suggest that we try and do that at all point in time. But when you are as deplorable, I know that's an overused term, but she has earned it. When you are as deplorable as Marjorie Taylor Greene is, both in act, in speech, in intent, in thought, you're just going to have to understand you can't gerrymander your way out of blowback. You can't electoral college your way out of pushback from the majority. That's, that's the long and the short of it. And I'm not suggesting physical rebellion or any sort of uh, you know, acts along those lines. I'm saying the people are going to be heard one way or the other. Maybe listen to them instead of talking over them. Not to be outdone, however, Matt Gates. I want to let uh, Congressman Eric Swalwell uh, tell us what Matt Gates did. This is equally deplorable. God, this is disgusting. One of the very first committees, the very first committee hearing of this Congress, Mr. Gates after we'd all agreed on what the committee's plan was going to be, it was going to be voice voted, everyone agreed, Mr. Gates wanted to offer an amendment to say the Pledge of Allegiance. That's great. Every single person on our side supported that. Now, I don't think he really genuinely cares about saying the Pledge of Allegiance. No. But he wanted to do it, again, to own the libs and to see if we would vote against it. We didn't. But who did he bring in here to say the Pledge of Allegiance? Get this. Who did he parade in here in a uniform? Somebody that he met at a gun club, he said, locally. Okay. Mr. Cicilline had the crazy idea that maybe we should vet the people who come in here, make sure they're not insurrectionists. Mr. McClintock, I am not kidding you. Mr. McClintock said, well, it's not like we're going to invite somebody who committed murder. No, he literally said that. It's not like we're going to invite somebody who committed murder. And yet? Okay, well, who did Mr. Gates bring? He brought Corey Beekman. Corey Beekman, in 2019, was in a standoff with the Michigan police after he was arrested and charged with murder, assault with intent to commit murder, and two counts of felony firearm possession. The family of the victims said Mr. Gates doing that, it was like getting a dagger stuck in our heart again. We were infuriated when we first saw it. I was disgusted with the whole thing. That's why there's a trust deficit here. 
you'd pull off a public stunt to try and own the libs, and what you did was you brought in a guy who allegedly shot two people and killed one of them. That's where the trust deficit is. So you can play your games, conduct your stunts. We're here to get shit done. I digress. Speaking of terrible people, who knew that the guy who wrote the comic strip Dilbert was such a POS? Had absolutely no, And by the way, I had no idea Dilbert was still in circulation. Comic strips. I haven't even touched a physical newspaper in a very long time. So good on anybody who's still making money writing comic strips, okay? In this ADHD society, in this non-print, fully digital form, that anybody is making money writing comic strips, good for you. Unless you're Scott Adams, who inexplicably went off on this racist rant on his YouTube show last week. So if, if you know, nearly half of all blacks uh, are not okay with white people, according to this poll, not according to me. It's not true. According to this poll, uh, that's a hate group. That's a hate group. And I don't want to have anything to do with them. And I would say, you know, based on the current way things are going, the best advice I would give to white people oh is to get the hell away from black people. What? Just get the fuck away. What? Wherever you have to go, just get away. Because there's no fixing this. This can't be fixed. All right, this can't be fixed. You just have to escape. So that's what I did. I went to a neighborhood where, you know, I have a very low black population. <laughs> Because unfortunately, there, you know, there's a high correlation between the density. And this is according to Don Lemon, by the way. Um, so here I'm just quoting Don Lemon when, when he notes that the, when he lived in a uh, mostly black neighborhood, there were a bunch of problems that he didn't see in white neighborhoods. So even Don Lemon sees a big difference in your own quality of living based on where you live and who's there. So I, I think it makes no sense whatsoever as a uh, white citizen of America mm. to try to help black citizens anymore. It doesn't make sense. It's, it's no longer a rational impulse. And so I'm, I'm going uh, to back off from being helpful to black America because <laughs> it doesn't seem like it pays off. Wow. Like I've been doing it all my life. Oh, and I've been, the only outcome is I, be, I get called a racist. Oh. That's the only outcome. <laughs> Can't imagine why. Then again, according to Newsweek, the poll question that elicited Adam's reaction was, it's okay to be white. The phrase has a history of use by white supremacists, which is why Rasmussen Reports included the question in the poll. Here's how it was worded. As you know, our motto at Rasmussen Reports is, if it's in the news, it's in our polls. Mark Mitchell, head pollster at Rasmussen, told Newsweek. The phrase, it's okay to be white, has been in the news many times. Mitchell noted that the Anti-Defamation League has labeled it's okay to be white as a hate slogan, and the organization traced the phrase's origins to a trolling campaign on the discussion forum 4chan. Whether the original trollers were white supremacists or not, actual white supremacists quickly began to promote the campaign, often adding internet links to white supremacist websites to the flyers 
or combining the phrase with white supremacist language or imagery, the ADL wrote. Mitchell said that despite the phrase's adoption by hate groups, quote, the vast majority of Americans agree with it, including a majority of black Americans. What Scott Adams ignorantly left out, by the way, in his rant was that in the very same poll, Rasmussen asked black respondents this question, can black people be racist too? 76% agreed. Adams, of course, misinterpreted the results and then went on his rant and got consequenced. Not canceled, consequenced. That's the new term we need to stick to. Follow The Ron Show on Twitter at RonShowATL. The Ron Show on America One Radio. Oh, Here it is, the last day of February, the end of Black History Month, and we'll get on this day in Black History in a little bit. But y'all, a former Atlanta fire chief, <laughs> Kelvin Cochran, fired eight years ago, by the way, because uh, he wrote a book where uh, he likened homosexuality to bestiality. That's right. Animal husbandry. Uh, apparently, he was speaking to a group of state government workers Monday for Black History Month. And according to the AJC, during the meandering speech, uh, Cochran said it was God's plan to bring Africans to America as slaves and that through slavery, only through slavery, could they become Christians. Can I give you some more evidence that I believe God's sovereignty has been of our country? The Bill of Rights in the United States of America was a visionary and prophetic statement, prophetic statement by our founding fathers that spoke of the basic rights and privileges of all humans, but at the time that it was written, it did not include the African slaves. That's what makes it prophetic, that when it was written, it was intentionally not inclusive of the African slaves. When it said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and that we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It didn't include the American slaves, but many of us today are living proof that we were included, even though it was intended for us not to be included. Or... Many in the Founding Fathers era believed that slaves were subhuman and didn't note the irony. Can I give you just another piece of evidence for our historical evolution and documents? The Pledge of Allegiance of our country is some more evidence. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands one nation under God, individual. Indivisible, which means unable to be divided with liberty and justice for who? For all. At the time it was written, we were on the other side of Reconstruction and the tenets of the, even the pledge are prophetic because at the time of its writing, it didn't include the descendants of the African slaves. It also didn't include the words under God, but I digress. All I'm trying to do is set you up to say in this introduction that the biblical perspective of history places all categories of history in the proper context because every story that depicts events and people from the beginning of time or his story, not H-I-S-T-O-R-Y, but capital H-I-S-S-T-O-R-Y. 
why. Yes. I've got to get you to see that what I'm about to share with you about African-American history is his story. Uh-oh. Everything we know about American history is his story. It all goes back to him, and he predestined his story before the foundation of the world. I always swell up with tears when I think about our journey as a faith in the context of American history. And I remember when I was uh, in the 10th grade and Alex Haley's Roots came out in our country and it was the most impactful movie miniseries in American history because it exposed things, it disclosed things about the history of African slaves and one family's journey that we had never seen of before or never heard of before. And uh, I always swell up with tears when I see it and when I see how our ancestors were treated during those horrific times. And I used to get angry when I watched it, but I don't get angry anymore. I came to the realization that God is sovereign. And like the great gospel writer, Daryl Coley wrote years ago, he can do whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it, however he chooses to do it, because he is sovereign. God always has a reason for the things that he allows. Yeah. Listen to this. Brace yourselves, my black brothers and sisters. Slavery in America did not catch God by surprise. In his sovereignty, God, listen, allowed Africans to be brought to America as slaves. Africa was on the eve of social, spiritual, and economic catastrophe and famine. Still going on today. So he brought 6 million Africans to America through the Middle Passage as slaves. Just as it was God's divine plan to enslave the nation of Israel, it was his sovereignty that allowed Africans to be brought to America in bondage. Honestly, I'm, I'm in disbelief. I, if, if this doesn't tell you that we need more African-American history taught, then, then I don't know what does. I'm gobsmacked. Religion was used to convince the enslaved that it was God's will they be enslaved. How does he leave that out? Anyway, I'm going to share the full YouTube link to this uh, speech he gave. Y'all can judge for yourself. I can't watch any more of it. Let me get on to some good news before I get upset about this man. The Georgia House Judiciary Committee, that is so hard to say, uh, approved a bill that would uh, require landlords in Georgia to provide housing, quote, fit for human habitation. That's good to see. Uh, let me read this part. Uh, while the lobbying arm for apartment owners told lawmakers that the, quote, Safe at Home Act was acceptable as it was originally drafted, tenants' rights advocates said the bill needed major revisions and could have even been detrimental to Georgia renters as introduced. Here's what the article in today's AJC says. On Tuesday, Representative Casey Carpenter, remember him, our favorite Republican? Carpenter offered changes that addressed many of their complaints. The bill no longer contains a provision that would have given landlords the power to expedite evictions for tenants charged or convicted of certain serious crimes. Carpenter also agreed to limit security deposits to no more than two months' rent, down from the three months in the original bill. Okay, I like that a lot. Current law has no minimum, but many landlords require deposits of one month's rent or less today, so critics worry it could lead to landlords charging more than they already do. Okay, that's a fair point. Uh, the bill does not define what, quote, fit for human habitation means and doesn't say what tenants can do if their unit isn't livable. 
that 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 is a concern. Maybe we need to work on those standards, and maybe they're forthcoming. We'll see. Okay, quickly on this day in Black History, the last day of the month of February in Black History Month, it was on this day that Philip Emegawali received the Gordon Bell Prize, considered the Nobel Prize of Computing, on this day in 1989. It was on this day in 1984 that Michael Jackson won eight eight Grammys just that year. In the year 1984, oh my gosh, it just doesn't seem like it's been that long ago, am I right? (laughs) I need to have a talk with myself, though, because uh, 1984 in uh, one year will have been 40 years ago. Woo! Okay, that's it for the day. Back tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, americawoneradio.com, and on your preferred podcast platform.